Well, good morning to each of you. It is good to be here, and uh, we are going to be in Psalm 10 today. And as we've been talking about, there are many different psalms uh, that uh, we are teaching through. There's songs, lament, and you learned probably a new term, imprecatory psalm uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, This would be a lament psalm with what they call an acrostic psalm. So it is a song of lament, but done in an acrostic form. And in this particular case, Psalm 10 and Psalm 9 are together, and they follow the pattern of the Hebrew alphabet, which means that it's more poetic in its style and nature. Psalm 9 is a little bit more victorious feeling, and Psalm 10 gets into the difficulties of belief when suffering happens. Consider this question that is found in verse 1 of Psalm 10. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Imagine what kind of context this must be written among in light of the question. God, why is it that you seem to be a long ways away? Why is it that you seem to be resistant to be here when these are troubled times? You ever reached out to God with questions like that? Think of the context of why you might have asked those questions of God in such a moment. For David, who wrote this psalm, we don't know the context. There's discussion, and certainly for that. But either David was near or became aware of a season of abuse in someone's life, or he's writing this out of an experience of his own abuse, of having been abused by someone more strong. Think about the worst thing that you've ever had to cry out to God over. Thinking of the worst thing that's ever happened to you at the hands of another. See, many of us begin life with this idea of everything is perfect and good and and you would never assume such darkness. In 1985, my little bubble of perfection was kind of burst a little bit. Walking the halls of my public school that I was attending at the time. You know, small towns, you get a chance to hear of certain things that happen. You hear of stories that might have happened over the weekend that, you know, were kind of the questionable stories, but they share it as some form of victory. In this particular situation... In 1985, I hear of a story that takes place around a hot tub. Several guys, I don't know how many guys, I don't even know which guys, and a single girl. The story, as I began to hear it from among the halls, as people are talking about it, was that the girl was not aware of all that happened in that hot tub. For the sake of the children in the room and 
The appropriateness, I will leave it at that. You can only imagine the story that's being put together by everybody in the halls that Monday at school. 1990, while in college, I came into another context, unexpected. I was in a dormitory at a Christian university where half the dorm on one side was all female and then on the other side was male. There was a common lobby in between and so the RAs of the girl's side and the RAs of the guy's side would have meetings together to prepare. One of the RAs that was in the dorm, female, was a senior in her final semester. Me, I was a sophomore. Everything seemed normal when we met on Friday going into the weekend, making sure everything was going to be prepared. But our RD called an emergency meeting on Sunday, bringing into their residence all of us RAs, and one of the RAs, this female RA that was uh, in her final semester, is weeping. She shares that she's about to leave, and she hopes to come back. She leaves the room. The RDs proceed to tell us that she'd been sexually assaulted at the local mall. I'll leave the details out. But I can tell you this. She never returned. What happened to her that weekend devastated her. I do not know what's become of her. A couple years later, now I'm a senior in college. Something happened where I felt victimized by a friend, not a physical or sexual or anything. It was a manipulation. And I used the term rape to describe how I felt. Sharing this with a group of friends that was a mixed group, and one of the girls immediately screamed at me, and disgust and said, how dare you use that word to describe that situation? And she ran away crying. I looked at one of her friends to, as if to find like, what did I do? And that friend looked at me and said, don't you get it? This has happened to her. I had no idea. And let me tell you, I do not use that term lightly. And I've never used it for anything other than what we typically use it for. 1993, I'm now out of college. And I hear that one of my primary mentors in life has been accused of harming several boys. He was never charged. They made it go away quietly. 1996, I'm a full-time youth pastor, and I have to make a decision on reporting a situation that a student had shared with us. The decision to call children and youth was not taken lightly because the person that was being accused was somebody I knew well and had good standing in the church. Nonetheless, we made the call 
only to have the student recant their story, as we found out later, because they were under threat from the victimizer. But in that meantime, there was a lot of hate and frustration towards those of us that had to make the decision to report it. It appeared that we had harmed somebody's reputation. We were just trying to protect. Years later, that person that had reported the situation finally had the confidence to speak out and to stay the course with their story. And that person that they were accusing indeed was found guilty and served time. These stories, unfortunately, are common. They happen. They're real. There are many different forms of abuse. There's emotional, mental, physical. There's neglect. But I, might I add another one, spiritual. There are people that will use the Bible to manipulate and control and to create victims. We must be cautious and concerned over such things. It has been an unfortunate common experience for me to be providing pastoral counseling for people only to discover that the roots of the issues are due to a form of abuse that I would not dare mention now. The abusers often are people close to them, family members, people of trust, yes, even mandated reporters. What these stories create are questions, and the questions are fair and they're real. Some of you may not be aware of just how common the abuse is. Statistically speaking, the Bureau of Justice says that abuse happens in the United States every nine seconds. There are 2.9 million cases of abuse reported annually. One in four women and one in six men will experience some form of sexual assault in their lifetime. That doesn't even count the other forms of abuse. The question you might be asking is, why does it seem so many get away with it? Maybe you are the victim. And the question you might ask is, why did this happen to me and what did I do to deserve it? How could they? I trusted them. And then maybe you find yourself asking the same question David does. Why, Lord? <laughs> Why, Lord, are you, do you seem to be so far off? Why do you hide yourself, God, when there are times of trouble right here in front of me? Why, God, did you not protect me? Psalm 10 is written by David, 
who we have stories in our scriptures that reveal his own victimization of abuse. What King Saul did to him was certainly emotional, mental, physical, and yes, even spiritual abuse heaped from him upon David, born out of jealousy and pride. So David certainly could have written this as somebody who had experienced some form of abuse. After all, King Saul set it up to make sure that he would die. I mean, David asked for his daughter's hand and married. And what does Saul do? Kill 200 Philistines and bring me their foreskins. Then I'll give you her in marriage. Basically, King Saul thought there's no way he's going to make this happen. So he's assuming he will die. King Saul will try multiple times trying to kill David. Multiple times he set him up for feeling lesser. Using his authority and his spiritual authority over David. So David could have written this thinking of King Saul. But for those of you that are familiar with the life of David, think about this. It is also true in the statistics that a huge percentage of victims become abusers themselves. So too David. One of the things that's refreshing about the word of God is that the consistency of truth. All the spiritual heroes of the Bible are flawed human beings that are saved by grace through faith by the work of God alone. David, too, was a man after God's own heart, but also, yes, he was a victim, but he became abuser himself. When he desired another man's wife, used his authority to take her as his own, and then had her husband killed. David would find that God saw and that God was going to bring about justice. But I believe this text was written before David's failure. Many scholars believe the same. So it's interesting when you read the first 11 verses of this psalm, it gives you the traits of an abuser. Basically identifying from what's within the abuser's heart and then putting it on display so that we can be aware and then, yes, you'll see in this an appeal to God from David saying, God, where are you? Why are you not listening? Again, true to human nature, we would ask those questions. But it is also true that in our desperate times, truth will cut through the fog like a sword can cut through flesh. Let's begin reading in verse 1 again with that question and then the traits of an abuser. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes he devises. He boasts about the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. 
in all his thoughts, there is no room for God. His ways are always prosperous. Your laws are rejected by him. He sneers at all his enemies. And he says to himself, nothing will ever shake me. No one will ever do me harm. His mouth is full of lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. He lies in wait near the villages. From ambush he murders the innocent. His eyes watch in secret for the victims. Like a lion in cover he lies in wait. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in the net. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. He says to himself, God will never notice. He covers his face and never sees. Then you see the turn. David cries out, Arise, Lord, get up. Lift up your hand, God. Do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile you? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me into account? But you, God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider the grief and you have it, take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked. Call the evildoer to account for his wickedness that would not otherwise be found out. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. Do you, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted? You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed, so that mere earthly mortals will never again strike terror. The traits of an abuser. Verse 2 talks about that they are attracted to the vulnerable. They sense when there's weakness. They sense when there is opportunity. Inside, there is a longing. And they're willing to play with that longing. As they look upon that which is easy. They become arrogant in their cravings. They make light of their greed or others who have the same greed. They dismiss their dark thoughts or their actions. They celebrate it. Much like what happened in the halls that I shared with you when I was a freshman. Where there was, could this be a true story? Did it happen? I don't know. But there was mockery. There was snickering. There was making light of the situation. In verses 3 and 4, you see where the abuser defies authority. He boasts about things. He blesses the wrongdoings. And in his pride, the wicked man does not seek God. In his thoughts, there is no room for God. 
you see one of the precursors. You know, an abuser doesn't just become an abuser automatically. One of the seeds that begins to be sown in the heart of an abuser is in a, de a defiance towards authority. People that disregard authority, that mock authority, always talk down on authority, are sowing within themselves a spirit that will not allow for accountability. It's a dangerous journey. And again, it begins with a heart that says, I'm my own leader. I don't need this person's direction. I can call my own shots. Well, guess what? Our enemy knows that that becomes territory by which he can work because now you've isolated yourself. And the enemy can begin to do a work in your heart and hinder your spirit and lead you to places you never dreamed you would ever do or go. The abuser in verse 5, his ways are always prosperous. It always seems like he's winning. Seems like he's excelling. Yet he sneers at all his enemies. Now who would the abuser's enemies be? Those who would call him into account. Those who would be in authority. And the victims themselves. That would say, you shouldn't do this to me. So he sneers at them. Passes it off. Accusations don't stick. Just like the situation I caught myself in when I tried to report something only to become the bad guy. Verse 6, as the abuser gets away with it over and over and it seems like no accountability has come, justice is not happening, look what happens in his spirit. He says to himself, nothing can shake me. Nothing can shake me, and no one can do me harm. What kind of arrogance is that? Where nothing, no circumstance, no situation can rattle my foundations, and no one can harm me. I'm too clever for that. As a result, because they feel invincible, their conscience is seared. And he's convinced that no one cares. And therefore will ever be caught. When you have no accountability, it also doesn't matter what you say. You can lie and get away with it, so it appears. It says in verse 7, the abuser's mouth is full of lies and threats. Trouble and evil are always under his tongue, easy to cough up. But then the tactics of an abuser are on full display here in verses 8 and 9 when he compares the abuser to like that of a lion. He lies in wait near the villages. From ambush, he'll murder the innocent. His eyes watch in secret his victims. Like a lion in cover, he lies in wait. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. And he catches the helpless and drags them off. I've traveled to Africa many times, and I'm always enamored by the big cats. 
and it's a common tactic of the lions and the other big cats, is that when they look at their prey, it doesn't matter their size. It's a matter of their isolation and vulnerability. So some of them they go after are sick. Others of them strayed too far from the rest of the herd. So they isolate, and then they gang up, and they take on the vulnerable. In the same way, the victim chooses to isolate. We'll look for the one that is most vulnerable, and then drag them away. Why is this possible? Because in verse 11, he believes in his heart these things, that God will never notice. He covers his face and never sees. You see, even an abuser can be a theistic person. They can believe that there is a God, but they make presumptions about God's character. The presumption is that God won't notice. This presumes that God is aloof, unattached, unbothered by what's happening among society. For the victims, many of them feel that. God must be aloof. God must be one that is not caring. How else can you explain the evil and suffering? In verse 11, again, the abuser says, God will never notice. He covers his face and he never sees. So this is a theistic approach to the idea of suffering and evil. I've shared before that atheism will make its greatest case against the idea of God by saying that the problem of evil and suffering cannot be overcome by those who believe there is a God. Because how can you believe that there's a God that is all-powerful and all-good if evil and suffering continues to happen? Why is God not stopping it? Why is he not active in investing in the situation and causing it to go away? It leads to the question then, well, why, God, are you standing far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Or maybe there is no God. Maybe there is no God. So the trouble that David is feeling here is that he doesn't presume there is no God. But he questions, God, why is it you would let an abuser come to the belief that you do not notice and that you do not care to see? At this point, anger rises up. And he says in verse 12, Get up, Lord! Lift up your hand, which is a statement of use your power and authority. So get up, Lord. Use your authority, God. And do not forget the helpless. Do not forget the helpless. Why do you let the wicked man revile you? Why do you let him say, God will never call me into account? Which again is an indictment upon God to suggest that an abuser believes God's not going to hold him accountable because God's not watched. God's covered his eyes. God doesn't care to see because then he might have to act. 
But then you see a turn in the statement. Because in the same way that you and I can be praying prayers such as what, I, what David just said, like, Lord, get up, be active. Are you going to stay silent forever? Then in the midst of emotion, truth can cut through the fog. And truth did. Verse 14 is a declaration of truth. Even though he's just said, God, they're accusing you of not responding and not seeing. But the truth is, verse 14, you, God, do see the trouble of the afflicted. You do consider their grief and take it in hand, which is again, and you consider it and you use your power and authority to respond. The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Victims. If you have ever suffered at the hands of an abuser, whether it be emotionally, physically, mentally, sexually, spiritually, he says here that God is your helper and that God does see your brokenness. Not only does he see your brokenness, he considers your hurt, so he gives thought to it, and he responds with his hand. But the statement at the end, which is again, the one verse that you will often hear be quoted out of Psalm 10, skipping all the rest, is that he is the father or the helper to the fatherless. In other words, there's a gap. And God stands in it. When the victim is isolated and vulnerable because nobody's there to protect, God stands there. He does see their brokenness. He does consider their hurt. He will respond with his authority and he stands in the gap for the fatherless. Now I'd like to look at verses 16 and following. Because after making this statement, he calls out God and says in verse 15, use your hand to break the hand of the abuser. In other words, break the power of the abuser. But then he makes a declaration. You, God, are the king forever and ever. You, God, hear the desire of the afflicted. You, God, encourage them and listen to their cry. And you, God, defend the fatherless and the oppressed so that mere earthly mortals will never again strike terror. See, Paul, or not Paul, David speaks the truth here. He said, in spite of how he feels in the moment that God is not responding and God is inactive, the truth is God is active. We do not always see it. God is about working on behalf of the fatherless or the broken or the harmed. He does have authority. He will then hear from that authority, authoritative position. He will hear, he will listen, and he will encourage the victim. And as he says in verse 18, and he will do battle. He will do battle for the victim.
Our emotions tell us that when we see evil and suffering abounding, seemingly prosperous, the truth is, it just is a revelation as to the fallenness and depravity of man. God does allow for that depravity to be on display. And as a result, there are victims and there are victimizers. But that does not mean that justice will not prevail. Rather, justice will indeed win out. He will encourage the victim. He does hear their cry and he will be active. This was a tough psalm. And I believe it was necessary to teach. I reconsidered teaching Psalm 10 because our services now have children in them week to week. But I can't get out of my head. That in a season of time, when we are choosing to fight a battle against a virus, which requires distancing and isolation, masking, but it also creates another problem. It means that children or the weak or the vulnerable do not have recourse from the account that comes from being around others. I believe in time it will be revealed that the past six months may have produced more abuse than in any other six-month period in the history of mankind. Mandatory reporters have not had access to children or to others. It's been left to the shadows. And to those who are listening, who are the victims, or have been victimized in the past, you need to know that justice will come. God will heal. And God cares for you. To the victimizer, the abuser, I say the same thing. Justice will come. And my recommendation is to bend the knee before it comes without your invitation. God has seen. God did not turn a blind eye. And he will hold you into account. But that same God who rescues the victim has been known to rescue the abuser. And you have the opportunity to confess before him your sin and to seek help and to make right what has been wrong.
Let's pray. God, I don't know who within earshot might have heard this and be currently in an abusive situation. And they wonder where you've been. Can you in this moment, in some tangible way, reveal that you've heard their cry? And that you are going to lead them to where they can find life anew. And God, to the abuser, will you crush their heart of pride? May they humble themselves enough to seek help and to make right through confession and the course of justice that which has been wrong. God, your word is powerful. I am thankful that you allow these psalms to be written. Now I ask that as we too, like David, after going through and looking at the dark questions and the traits of an abuser, he rose to that high point of realizing, God, you are God. And you are worthy of our trust and your heart is good. I can't help but also think about the fact that we just did communion where Jesus served that communion to an abuser. Someone who is going to sell him hours later to abuse, death on the cross. And yes, justice came to Judas, but so did life to the rest of us. And for the victims, I pray for life, that they'll discover the healing power of Jesus Christ and conviction to the abuser, that they may repent and discover life too. Lord, speak to our hearts now as we sing a song that we have to hold in confidence that you are worthy of our praise even when we do not feel it. The truth is you're worthy of our praise and you're a good God, an all-powerful God, and you're active on our behalf. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you are in a current context where you are under threat or harm, please write this number down. one 800 And I'm so sorry. It agrees God's heart that you're under this situation. If you have struggled in recovering from abuse, we as a pastoral team would love to help. Reach out to us at office at lefc.net. Ask for just a pastor to reach back out to you and we'll have one of our pastors do so. It's a journey towards healing, but we want to introduce to you God's love and care and that he desires to see you made whole again. 
Lastly, there's an opportunity to discuss these things. We have several questions that I would encourage you to consider to do as a family or maybe as a life group. And I believe this text can be very equipping. It can be encouraging, especially in times when you feel like God's not listening. And I believe that God can use this text to help you in talking to others who are victims and yes, those who are abusers. Having said that, we conclude with what is the same way that David did. He praised the name of God. He acknowledged that God is indeed listening, caring, encouraging, and will hold into account the injustice that has happened to people. May the church be the safest place to go, the safest place to find help, and the safest place to understand who God really is. Let us be ambassadors in a time when the truth of these last six months and all the things that have been in the shadows start coming out, it will be the healing spirit of those who are living by the spirit where help can be found. That is our charge. Please pray for those who are being harmed. Please pray that God's justice will be revealed before their eyes and before the abuser's eyes. And then ask the Lord if there's anything you can do to be a healing agent to those that maybe have suffered. In the name of Jesus, we go because God is hearing, God is seeing, and God cares. Amen. You are dismissed.